Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 183 for the 28th of January, 2015. I'm Chester Wisniewski here again with Paul Ducklin. Hello, Chester, from a bit of a heat wave, while I believe North America is having a bit of a cold wave. Well, we had a bit of a heat wave here in Vancouver. It was, uh, it was about 16 degrees C or 61.7 degrees Fahrenheit for our American listeners. Um, but of course, we're here to talk about security, and uh, just uh, as we're preparing all this um, content for this week's podcast, Apple's released a batch of updates. Uh, they're bringing OS X up to 10.10.2, iOS 8.1.3. There was also fixes for all the currently supported versions of uh, Safari and uh, the Apple TV product. I, I did a quick count. It turns out there's about 54 um, vulnerabilities fixed in the OS X Yosemite update. That's quite a batch, and it miraculously came out on a Tuesday morning. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. Apple doesn't pre-announce. I mean, ironically, our colleague Mark Stockley wrote today on Naked Security, hey, good news, this Thunderstrike vulnerability, the thing that lets you reflash the Mac firmware when it's supposed to be locked against writes uh, by using the Thunderbolt port, that's getting patched. No sooner had he posted it than bingo, I got the email from Apple saying, here's the update. How I wish they could just give us a little bit of warning. I really don't believe that it gives any advantage against the crooks by doing everything at the last minute like this. Yeah, and the advantage to the good guys of having uh, the opportunity to plan for iOS updates on hundreds or thousands of phones in their environment. And there's so many good things about advanced notification, which we took Microsoft to school for a few podcasts ago. But, you know, good on Apple for fixing this stuff. It was a it was a very diverse crew of people reporting bugs. Um, some of them, of course, Apple found themselves. But uh, I noticed there was a handful from Google's Project Zero, which has been uh, causing lots of controversy again with Microsoft. But just like Microsoft, Apple gets a lot of zero days that are being dropped after the 90 days, uh, including proof of concept. And Apple fixed many of them in this update. Um, there were fixes from the Zero Day Initiative at HP. There were fixes from Stefan Esser, the very famous iOS hacker. Uh, there were fixes from jailbreak teams that have, of course, um, they, they live on bugs to, to break things. So do you think those jailbreak teams reported the bugs? Or do you think Apple found them from the jailbreaks and then credited the jailbreak team? Well, I wouldn't like to guess at that, Chester. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of both. Certainly that's always, if you're a jailbreaker, then as soon as you publish your jailbreak, you're kind of showing your hand. And since Apple wasn't supposed to allow jailbreaking in the first place, that they're kind of duty-bound to fix it. And so the cat and mouse game goes on. Yeah, I found that entertaining when I saw it, because I'm like, well, it seems pretty unlikely that the jailbreak team is going to go to Apple and say, hey, fix these bugs that are allowing us to jailbreak our phones. Yes, I do. I've long wished that Apple would actually embrace that community so that they were all inside the tent, if you like. You know, even if there are dire warnings, even if there is a legalistic way where you do void your warranty, my gut feeling is there are fewer risks by embracing people who want to try and do more with the device. Uh, I think you've just got more to gain by what you'll learn from them than playing this cat and mouse where they know how to get around the restrictions, but they don't want to say because they know that Apple will fix it. Whereas if they did say, then everyone would actually be better off sooner. Sure enough. Um, speaking of, I guess, being better off sooner, where the U.S. government seems to be making a lot of efforts at public outreach through 
ic3.gov, through the FBI, through the uh, what are known as the ISACs. Uh, there was another one this week related to some invoice scam warnings. Now, I know we've been seeing this invoice scam stuff for quite a few years, so this isn't exactly a new problem, but I guess it's good to raise public awareness. It is, Chester, because this is an old-school invoice scam. In fact, the IC3 notes that in 2013, uh, more than a 1,000 U.S. businesses were affected, and the average loss was around about $100,000 each. And really, what it boils down to, terribly simple when you think about it, they contact you and say, hey, I'm supplier X, and they give some details that lead you to believe that's probably true. Uh... We moved and we changed banks and here's our new bank account number. And then if the person buys it and updates their database, then the crooks sit back. They don't have to send fake invoices. They wait for the real supplier to send a real invoice and you just pay it to the wrong guy. And you'll only realize something's wrong when the debt collector from that supplier phones you up and says, Oi, you're way behind on your payments, son. So it's easy to think, well, nobody would ever fall for this. But you can imagine that the crooks don't need an awful lot of information to make it sound believable. And it seems that this scam has come back not just in the US, also in Oz, because Scamwatch in Australia, the Scamwatch site in Australia is also warning about this. The only silver lining in it is it seems that Aussie companies, when they fall for this, are only being stung for an average of about $30,000 a time. Still an awful lot of money. Yeah, it is. And we should clarify for people, IC3.gov is the Internet Crime Complaint Center operated by the FBI and the National White Collar Crime Center. Uh, it is a U.S.-based site, but it is a good place for American listeners to report any Internet fraud or crimes. And they do accept complaints from anyone in the world, although obviously their focus is mostly on uh, on American citizens. Uh, and back to the patching topic, uh, Adobe released a Flash Player update, of course, as part of Patch Tuesday, but then there was sort of a, I guess what we would call out of band, uh, an emergency update to Flash over the weekend, and then a more formal release of that update uh, the beginning of this week. And uh, I think this is the one that had been reported as being part of the Angular exploit kit, so that probably makes it a very high priority one. When you get reports like this, oh, there's a zero day and this is an exploit that allows an attacker to use Flash as a way to escape from your browser and therefore to take over your computer. In other words, Flash is part of the vehicle for the attack. There's a, a sort of ironic thing happens. Firstly, if you aren't patched, and in this case, there were two zero days at the same time and Adobe were able to patch one but not the other. That took a few more days. If you're unpatched, good defense in depth can still protect you because the exploit alone is not enough for the crooks to implant malware. You know, they've got to get you to a website. They've got to send you some JavaScript that chooses the exploit. They've got to deliver the exploit. That runs some shellcode. There's probably a downloader. Then there's the malware. So even if there isn't a patch, it's still worth learning what's going on and not panicking, actually just making sure that you have uh, your ducks in a row, if I'm allowed to say that. But the flip side is that even if you do apply the patch when you hear, ooh, this exploit's being used with that exploit kit with that attack, uh, that's still not enough on its own. So just patching, paradoxically, is, doesn't save you. The actual exploit kit may realize that you're patched and go and try some other attack instead. I guess what I'm saying is the price of security is eternal vigilance. So I want to say well done to Adobe. They, I think they reacted very quickly and closed this whole 
but just applying those patches is not enough to protect you against absolutely everything that seems to have gone on in this particular attack. There are lots of other facets, and the crooks aren't only using this exploit. And I've been pleased to see the reduction in use of Flash in general. I mean, uh, as a plugin, it's got a bit of a speckled security history and been a, a way for crooks to get into your browser and, and cause it to execute malicious content way too often to count. You know, it's up there with Java as one of the all-time high exploited plugins. And I don't really use Flash very often anymore. I, I often have it disabled or um, non-functioning on my system. And I don't really notice often for days, sometimes weeks. Uh, I can watch a lot of videos that are now using HTML5 video players instead of uh, requiring Flash. Um, I think we're finally getting closer and closer to maybe eliminating Flash from our browser repertoire. Yes, and I bet you Adobe won't be that sad to see it go because it's one less thing for them to worry about and support, given that they've got to support all the other stuff like HTML5 as well anyway. And, oh, by the way, Chester, we, we're getting an increasing number of comments on Naked Security. Originally, it was people, no, you couldn't possibly turn off Flash, the web will fall apart. And now, for the first time, uh, actually getting comments and emails from people saying, saw your advice, I've tried living without Flash, and uh, everything's actually going swimmingly. So I think people are coming around to the idea that there's life after Flash. Yeah, that's really good news, and, and I think getting rid of most of these plugins in general is going to be to our benefit, and you know, the, the web's a pretty rich place just using the already cobbled together stuff that we use, like JavaScript and JSON and all these other bits and pieces. As usual, if you're looking on how to do something correct, uh, you probably don't look to the U.S. government necessarily as the, the shining beacon for uh, how to efficiently and correctly do things. Oh, this is going to be healthcare, isn't it? Healthcare.gov. Yeah, it turns out the healthcare.gov website, um, based on some political constructions of how the American uh, Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, is implemented, uh, you kind of go to sort of a hub and you fill out some information on that hub about yourself, your age, your health uh, decision, you know, are you pregnant, uh, are you a smoker, you know, some information like this for the insurance companies to assign you a risk category. Then they have to hand you off to one of the state-based uh, healthcare operating groups that gives you quotes from insurance companies and things to, to apply for the insurance. I couldn't believe it when I read the story on Naked Security that they embed that information about your age and your, uh, your health habits and this kind of thing directly in the URL itself. So it's going to show up in refer headers, it's going to show up to anybody that uh, is linking content to or from that site or anywhere you may go afterwards. Yes, very greatly simplified. URLs are kind of broken into three main parts. There's the site, the host, nakedsecurity.sophos.com, for example. There's the path, which might be 2015 slash 01 slash 27 slash name of story. And then optionally, you can have the query, which is when you look at a URL, there's a question mark and then a whole load of parameters that can come afterwards. And it's the stuff that comes after that question mark that sometimes is kind of innocent. But what isn't good is when that's handed off to another site with question mark, your name equals your login equals your age and so on. Uh, that kind of stuff should never be in the URL. That way, it can't get into the referrer header, it's not going to leak, it's not going to end up in weblogs. Best defense, no be there. 
Yeah, I thought we'd learn this lesson with the, uh, what was it, superannuation funds in, in Australia a few years ago where the gentleman was logging into his retirement account and uh, saw what looked like his account number in the URL and decided to increment it by one and discovered he now was logged into someone else's retirement account. We had it recently with Delta Airlines, that thing with the boarding passes. We had it with Alibaba, the Chinese uh, e-commerce site. So I guess what we're really saying here is that we're not very good at learning uh, from others' mistakes. It sort of grabs you by the stomach a bit tighter when it's to do with healthcare, doesn't it? Because, you know, that's something where you're giving away information that you really don't want other people to know. A, because it is so jolly personal. And secondly, because actually it's really good for social engineers because it says a lot about you. Yeah. To conclude, um, wanted to talk about today being Data Privacy Day, which, uh, like uh, Cybersecurity Awareness Month and some of the other things that you and I discuss, it's not like this is the day that we're going to protect our private information and, you know, the rest of the year we get to run wild and just fling all the privacy off to the side. This is a time for you to step back and go, what information am I collecting if I'm a web developer or a mobile app developer or... Um, an organization that maybe gets some market research information from their clients in order to provide a, a higher quality service or a more tailored experience for their customers. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it is a good time to step back and say, what are we collecting? Why are we collecting it? Is it sensitive? And how are we protecting it? I couldn't agree more, Chester. I think a great opportunity Here's an example. If you're a programmer and you're writing a mobile app and it uses HTTPS, then maybe on Privacy Day, make it a little sideline project to set up a fake version of your own site, put a bogus SSL certificate on there, visit it with your app, and make sure that your app notices and complains. That's an example of something you could do that you might have neglected. You might get a surprise, and that would let you do something about it sooner rather than later. There's nothing to lose, really. Yeah, it kind of goes back to the first story of the podcast with Apple's updates. And, you know, looking at that, many of the updates uh, from Apple were to fix bugs that Apple found. And, you know, everybody makes mistakes. And if you can find your own mistakes, you're, you're ahead of the game. Absolutely. And I guess the other side of the fence for all the users amongst our readers, and most programmers are users as well, it's a great opportunity, Privacy Day, to go to your friends and just remind them even if they've heard you say it lots of times before you know security matters for everybody it's really easy to fall into the habit of no one's interested in little old me because all the big stories you read about things like data breaches and privacy disasters tend to be about big companies there's the sonys there's the targets there's the adobes obviously the crooks are going to be a million times more interested in them well, they're not, because if they can automate their attacks, they might be able to hook a million individuals as well. And collectively, that could be as valuable as a target. Exactly. I couldn't say it better. And on that note, I will conclude Sophos Security Chat Chat 183. As always, the latest security news can be found over at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available on iTunes via RSS, um, soundcloud.com slash Security, and the TuneIn app, and any other place you find fine podcasts. And until next time, stay secure.